Welcome to the Highland Church Podcast, where we share biblical teaching to glorify God and to bless you. This year, we're talking about my part, God's plan. God has a purpose for you, and that purpose is a part of God's bigger plan for the world. Now, if you connect with what you hear today, I hope you'll join us online Sundays at 10 a.m., or that you'll join us on-site right here in Memphis, Tennessee. Now, let's jump into today's teaching, and don't forget, you're part of God's Okay, we're going to be in Genesis 6 today. If you want to turn there, if you've got your Bible, if you don't, it'll also be on the screen behind me. And we're telling a story, even if you've never been in church before, you've probably heard this story. It's the story of Noah's Ark, okay? And um, it's a story that actually takes place over four chapters in the Bible, Genesis 6, 7, 8, and 9. And so we won't read the whole thing today. But what I'd encourage you to do is to go home this afternoon and read the whole story. I'm going I'm to draw your attention to some passages that you might underline and go back to. But at the end of every service, we released on our social media accounts questions we call Digging Deeper. And those questions have other passages that you might go to to, to help make sense of the story that we talk about on Sunday morning. So if you want to go deeper this afternoon with the story of Noah and the flood, you can check our social media right after this and it'll be on there. Can I pray as we get going this morning? God, I thank you for your people gathered here in this place. I'm thankful for the body of Christ that spans this world, for those who are joining us online from different places in Memphis, this country, and really around the world. What a blessing. God, I pray that in this moment, as we dig into your word, that you would be glorified, that we would lift you high, that we would savor the sweet promises of your word, that we would see your providential hand working through time. And God, I pray this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, let me summarize the story because again, it's four chapters. And I think most of you probably know it, but let me, let me just assume that some of you don't. God looks down on the world, not long after his creation, several generations, and he sees that his world has become full of violence and evil. We'll look at that in a second. And he decides he's gonna deal with it. And so he floods the whole world to wipe away that violence and evil. And he saves one man, Noah, and his family, and a bunch of animals who came into the arky two by two and go for barky, barky. Um, and so he saves, the animals come into the ark, he saves a bunch of animals, God saves Noah and his family. They're in the ark for 40 days and 40 nights of rain, but then much longer before the waters recede and God saves them. That's the story. So this is a story that we tell to kids. You know, I've heard in the nursery that if we've got unruly kids, we just tell the Noah's Ark story and it gets them, it gets them engaged. How many of you had for your kids or grandkids or when you were growing up, one of those Noah's Ark play sets, you know, that has all the animals and you try to stuff the giraffe into the hippo hole into the boat and that'll keep a kid busy for hours. It's great. But, although it's a great story for kids, it is not actually a kid's story. And it's probably important that we recognize right at the, you know, right off the bat, that this story is really challenging to the faith of many people, many adults, who look at this story, a story about God wiping from the face of the earth nearly all of humanity. And they say to themselves, what kind of God would do this? 
Uh, Lindsay and I got to go to Washington, D.C. a couple months ago to do a wedding for a buddy, but we, we tacked a couple days on and made it a little getaway from the kids. And um, we went to the Smithsonian Museums, several of the Smithsonian Museums where we were there. And in one of those museums, there was this statue that I can't forget. I know Lindsay and I have talked about it several times. It's of a family of three. It's a lifelike statue. And there are invisible hands not, not seen in the statue itself, but obviously at work that are, that are pulling this family of three apart. And they're reaching for each other with these just pained grimaces on their faces. It's a mom and a dad and a little boy, and the boy is just weeping. I don't remember the title of the statue, but I remember the description that this was a description of forced separation of families during the era of American slavery. And it's that little boy's face, about the age of my boys. Can't forget that. And then, not far down the street from that, from that um, statue is another museum, the Holocaust Museum. Some of you have been there before. And in the Holocaust Museum, many of the, um, you know, the, the pictures and videos and stuff are, are, you know, up where everybody can see them. But they have this feature in the Holocaust Museum that the worst images, the worst scenes, are actually down low on the wall, behind a barrier or, or a wall. And the idea is that if, if you are going to see the worst that humanity has ever done to each other, you need to be tall enough to see over the wall. You need to be old enough to see it. All right, do you know what story sustained slaves during the era of American slavery? Sustained Jews during the Holocaust? This one, the story of Noah's Ark. And stories like it, stories from Scripture where God not only remembers and saves his faithful people, but where God also judges those who are doing great evil. Stories like the Exodus, stories like the one we have in Revelation. When you are on the receiving end of human evil, of wickedness and violence, it is not enough for you to know that our God is a forgiving God. You need to also know that our God is a just God and that God will punish evil. That's what you need to know then. You know, for those people, these stories aren't embarrassing. These stories are what gave them life and sustained them. You know, we in the West find ourselves, you know, kind of embarrassed by the story of Noah's Ark, if we really think about it, kind of defending what God does in Genesis 6 through 9 to our friends who say, how, how could God possibly do that? Okay, that's what we ask. What kind of God would do this? What they ask is, what kind of God would not do this? Because he would not be much of a God if he doesn't deal with human evil. So one of the fascinating things about this story, if you'll look at it, and look with me here at Genesis 6 as the story starts, is that what we have in this story is really the nexus between the, the judgment of God against evil, and you can leave that on the screen, and the faithfulness of God to his people, where those two things collide. And so what Genesis 6 does is it takes us to this bird's eye view where we are side by side with God looking down on the world instead of looking down on God. For the record, anytime we find ourselves looking down on God, judging God, we're, we're in the wrong spot. Okay, and we need to move. So what it does though is it pulls us up into this heavenly vantage point where we're side by side with God looking down on the, on the world. And this is what God sees when he looks down. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, the whole human race, everybody, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart 
was only evil all the time. Look, there's no exceptions except one we're going to see in a moment. Wickedness of the whole human race, only evil all the time, and the Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth, and his heart was deeply troubled. I met with a, a sister here not long ago, and um, she told me, she called this me, and she said, Eric, I, I want to talk to you, and the reason is I've been thinking about the same thing for 12 years, and I can't stop thinking about it. And then she began to describe how over a decade ago she had lost a job. It was a job that she loved, that she thought she was great at it, and she thought she was wrongly let go. She thought somebody there had had it out for her, and she'd lost this job wrongly. And she said, Eric, I cannot stop thinking about it, and it's been 12 years. And there's a part of us that hears that story, and we want to say, well, sister, it's time for you to move on. Okay, but think about it. Why can't she let it go? It's because she thinks she is the only one who knows she was wronged. And if she lets it go, that wrong will never be made right. It's up to her to hold on to this. So how comforting it is to you when you're in that position, and probably all of us have been in that position before, how comforting it is when you're in that position to come to this passage and see that God sees and knows the wrongs of this world and that he will deal with them. It's not on you. He sees it and knows it, and he will deal with it. Think about that. <clears throat> You know, there are other ancient flood stories that were told about the same time as this story was being told. And in those stories, the gods, and these are other ancient religions, so gods, plural, the gods decide to flood the world for a bunch of random reasons, which is a good indication that there was a flood, that it shows up in a bunch of different religions in the story. But they decide to flood the world for all kinds of random reasons. And one of them, the gods are taking a nap and human beings are being too loud. And so they flood the whole world. <clears throat> And another one, the, the gods wake up one day and they look down on the world and there's too many people on the world. It's like Thanos in Avengers. And so they decide they're just going to thin them out with a flood. Okay. In other words, the flood is random. There's no justice in it. There's no purpose behind it. Okay, so think about it. Think about this with me. For some of us, it is deeply troubling to recognize that God will punish evil. But how much more troubling is it if God doesn't care about evil? And if God's not going to do anything about it, if he's random and unreliable, how much more troubling is that? Much more, much more. And so as troubling as it, as it is for us to believe that God's going to punish evil, this is the grace. He's going to punish evil. <laughs> and so um, what we can take from that is that what breaks our hearts is what breaks God's heart. That he looks down and he sees a world that's evil all the time. All the thoughts of the human heart are evil all the time. And he decides he is going to deal with that because that's not the world that he made. He designed a creation that was good. And he, he tells his creation, I want you to go and multiply and fill the earth. And the idea is that the goodness of God is going to spread everywhere on earth. But what happens instead, that evil inside of us gets replicated. And that spreads everywhere on earth until it takes over. And God decides... He's going to deal with it. Look at this in verse 11, chapter 6. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and it was full 
of violence. Now, let me pause here. Leave that up on the screen for a second. Again, don't think that what we have here are some people who have some jealousy in their hearts uh, or who they lust a little bit with their, when they're home by themselves, and, but it's not really harming anybody. Okay, this is a statement about how evil works. What starts inside of us eventually moves outside until the world is full of what? Violence. So it's not just about what's happening inside people's hearts, it's about the way that they're treating each other and ruining the good thing God has made. Okay, let's go on. God saw how corrupt the earth had become for all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. It's corrupt. Another translation says it's ruined. Now think about it. We want a God who will do something about that. Am I right? We do not want a God who leaves this world ruined. We desire a God who, like he says in Genesis 6, verse 7, will wipe away, will blot out the ruin. Okay, now, of course, it's not all bad. It's almost all bad, but you have this guy named Noah. So come with me here to verse 9 of chapter 6. Let let me introduce you to Noah. Noah was a righteous man. He was blameless among the people of his time, And he walked faithfully with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Okay, I want to point out two things about Noah. The first, he has three sons. This is somebody you need to be praying for. Okay. (laughs) Amen. Noah and I are basically the same person. Okay. Secondly, look at this. Noah is righteous and blameless, and he walks with God. I got a call from a buddy the other day, and he said, Eric, I was at two funerals today. I was like, oh, man, I'm sorry. That's a hard day. And he's like, oh, no, it was a great day. It's like, that did not sound right. And he said, no. He said, let me explain. I, I love funerals. And these people, they had lived long lives. You know, they weren't taken prematurely. They had lived long, faithful lives. He said, Eric, this is the reason I love funerals. He said, at funerals, you're reminded about what's most important. You're reminded about what really matters because you remember what these people lived for. Well, how would you like to be remembered for being righteous and blameless and walking with God? How would you like to be remembered for that? I mean, think about it. Noah lives in this terrible world. I mean, as bad as we think our world is, this world is worse. Every thought of the human heart is only evil all the time. The world is filled with violence. Everybody's thoughts are evil, okay? And Noah is just quietly righteous, blameless, walking with God. He's not out kind of raging against the machine and fighting all of this evil. He's just quietly walking with God. And I keep saying that word quiet. Did you know, like if you've seen the movie with Steve Carell about the Noah's flood, he talks a lot, which isn't surprising for Steve Carell. Look at Genesis 6 through 9. Noah doesn't say a single word in the whole story until he's back on dry ground. Did you know that? This is all we have from Noah again and again. Verse 22, this is repeated again and again in the story. Noah did everything just as God commanded him. That's all we get from Noah. He just does what God commands him quietly. Builds a boat, fills it full of animals, survives a storm, sends out some birds, all of it, because that's what God commanded him, quiet obedience, righteous, blameless, walking with God. He's not a preacher. You know, he's not up there just 
having everybody listen to him every week. I mean, how audacious and proud do you have to be to do that? He's not a Sunday school teacher. He's not a Christian author. He doesn't have a blog. He's not on social media just railing against the evils of the world. He's just quietly doing exactly what God tells him to do. Now, think about this. We're pretty sure that this story was written down when the Jews were in exile, Babylonian exile. Now, it's a much older story than that, but this is when it gets written down. And so one of the things we do when we read our Bible is we pay attention to when the story is being told. And I want you to think about this. The Jews have been sent away from their homes. To get a picture of it, you might think about something like the Trail of Tears in American history when we, when we sent Native Americans away from their homes to live on reservations. It's something like that. They've been forcibly removed from all of their homes. Many have died in the process. There was an invasion that lasted over a lifetime between northern Israel and southern Judah. They're forcibly removed from their homes. They're sent into Babylon, this empire that they don't agree with. They look around and it's evil all the time. That's what they think about the world that they're living in. It's only evil all the time. That's what they see around them. And so what story do they start telling at the campfire? The story about how God is going to deal with this evil. And in the meantime, you know what you can do? You can quietly be righteous and blameless and walk with God. That's what you can do. I mean, that'll preach right there. That'll preach. You don't have to have a fancy degree to do it. You don't have to know Greek or Hebrew. I mean, they knew Hebrew, you probably don't. Uh, you don't have to have a big following on social media. You don't have to be a big deal. While you are waiting in a world of evil for God to take care of it, you can be righteous and blameless and walk with God. You can do exactly what God commands you. Man, think about that. I had uh, lunch with a, a dad not long ago, and he's such a good man, man of God. And um, he started telling me his story. He was married before and had a couple children with his first wife and was later divorced. And um, he came to Jesus after that, was baptized into Christ Jesus later on. And so he has adult children now that he keeps up with, of course. And he said, Eric, my main prayer every day is that my kids will come to Jesus. That's my main prayer every day. And he says, I, I call them and I encourage them and try to get them to come to church and to be reading their Bible and praying. He says, I'm doing all that every day. But one of the things I've learned, Eric, is that you cannot control your kids. He said, but here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna live in a way that they can see the difference Jesus Christ has made in my life. That's what I can do. He didn't use these words, but what's he saying? I'm gonna be righteous, I'm gonna be blameless, and I'm gonna walk with God. Can't change his kids, can't control them. Who can he control? Him. Okay, so why can we do that? Why can we live like that in a world that's filled with evil? Let me, look, let me show you one more thing. I want you to flip over to chapter eight, if you've got your Bible. I want you to go to eight, verse one, and I want you to underline the first few words in eight, verse one. The whole story is moving towards this moment. Eight, verse one is kind of the climax of the story. So it's building up to this moment that's kind of coming down the mountain after this. This is eight, verse one. It's in the middle of the storm. It's been raining and raining for days and days. The world is still flooded. He's on the ark for months, not just 40 days and 40 nights. It's months before the waters recede. Okay, we come to this. This moment, though, in chapter 8, verse 1, the most important four words in the story. You ready? But God remembered Noah. But God remembered 
No. In the midst of all the evil of the world and the destruction and judgment of God, what does he do? He remembers the person who belongs to him, the righteous one, and he saves him. Now, this, I, want to, I want to show you kind of the providential hand of God working through time. This story, for this reason, that God remembered Noah, his righteous person, becomes deeply important, not only for ancient Israelites, but also for the early church. This story is told over and over again by Jesus. Noah's uh, on the lips of Jesus. Noah's on the lips of those who found and began the early church. Okay, they keep telling this story over and over again, right? One of the most important places this happens is in 1 Peter 3. And if you've got a Bible and you want to turn there, you can. Uh, it's also in the Digging Deeper questions that will be released at the end of service. Okay, 1 Peter 3. Peter's talking to Christians who are living in a hostile world. Peter's undoubtedly written to Christians who are dealing with some kind of persecution, so it's a really hard time for Christians. They're living in a world that they view as evil and hostile to them. And then he tells them to encourage them the story of Noah. But before he tells them that story, he sets it up like this. This is the way that he frames the story of Noah. And so this is, this is if you're going to underline something else in your Bible, this is in 1 Peter 3. Okay, this is in verse 12 of 1 Peter 3. I want you to underline this in your Bible. Out to the side of it, I want you to put Noah, Genesis 6 through 9. All right. This is how he prepares us for the story. For the eyes of the Lord, this is a promise that he's making based on this story. The eyes of the Lord are on who? The righteous. And his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. What's he saying? He's saying to these early Christians who are struggling. You know, they're trying to live faithfully in a world that's so evil. To them, that sounds like as silly as building a boat when there's no rain clouds and there's no water nearby. They're struggling to live faithfully in this world. And what he tells them is God pays attention to his righteous people. He pays attention to the prayers of his righteous people and he will intervene for them. And you know what else? He will punish those who are wicked. He'll do it, right? That's why he tells this story. God will remember you and save you. And then he tells the story of Noah's flood. And so this is, again, this is this providential hand of God here. Can I walk backwards towards the baptistry and you guys follow me? Can you do that? How are we doing on the camera? There we go. All right, you're sticking with me. Good. All right. I'm kind of dark back here. There we go. All right. You got this baptistry here. Okay. One of the amazing things about the history of faith is that this story, Noah's Ark, that is embarrassing for us and includes a flood, becomes central to the faith and the practice of the early church. Because what we realize is, is that the flood is doing two things at the same time. It is judging, condemning, and killing evil and saving the righteous, God's people, at the same time. The flood isn't all bad, it's also what? Good, okay. So the flood's doing two things at the same time. It's condemning the evil that is inside of humans. It's killing it and it's saving those who belong to God. And so in 1 Peter 3, I want you to go home and read it this afternoon. He says that we are saved by the flood. 
that in Jesus Christ, when you and I are baptized, we enter into this water, what's happening in us is that the evil inside of us is being killed and we are being saved. That's the point, okay. So let me show you again the providential hand of God working over time. Here's this thing that happens millennia ago, God flooding the world and God has ordained it. And so that in that thing, all the way back in Genesis 6, we see the way that you and I would be redeemed today. The psalmist says, and this is the thing, as soon as we start judging the evil of the world, we recognize that same evil is inside of us. And so the psalmist says in Psalm 51, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. That word blot out is the same word in Genesis 6, 7. I'm gonna wash it all away, all the evil of the world. I'm going to deal with it. So Jab Mesa, one of our missionaries in Papua New Guinea, sent me these two pictures last week. Um, Jab and Becky, his wife, are on a, a trip to a remote village in Papua New Guinea. Let's see, can we throw those pictures up on the screen? They're on a, they're on a, a trip to this remote village in Papua New Guinea to start a new church. We started a new church a couple of weeks ago, Oikos Church, the first one that we started in 20 years. They're starting new churches like every month. So we have a lot to learn from them. But he goes to this little village in Papua New Guinea and he tells me, Eric, there are three believers in this village who asked us to come here and start this church. He said, as of today, there are five, <laughs> he said. And so this, this uh, father right here and this uh, young woman right here being baptized in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the reason I wanted to show you these pictures today is that if I show you a picture of our baptistry, it kind of looks like a swimming pool. That looks like a flood. You know, that looks like a flood, doesn't it? You know, of God, by the power of his son, Jesus Christ, by his death and resurrection, takes this water of judgment from all these years ago and in that same water judges us, right? But that process, what it does is it cleanses us. It reveals what God needs to remove from us and it is washed away and replaced by all of his goodness and love and compassion. Peter says, it is this water that saves you also. It is this water by the power of Jesus Christ that saves us. Look at that. You ever see that before? I mean, we're talking about something that happened millennia ago that God redeems and that our faith is based on today. Can you believe that? Mm. It is this reminder that the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And in that equation, because of this water, we come out on the right side. Have you given your life to Jesus in baptism? I don't do this at the end of every sermon. Maybe today you're, you're thinking about it. You haven't done it yet. Let's, let's do it. I want God to declare you righteous. I want God to remove the evil that's inside you, to blot it out, to cleanse you, to wash it away. Don't you want that? We can do it today. I'll be down here, down front. If you want to come and talk to me, we'll do it today. If you're online and you want to give your life to Jesus in baptism, comment on our thread and we'll follow up with you this week. We'd love to share Jesus with you. We have a great Lord and Savior in Jesus Christ who is present in that water, redeeming and saving those who are his. Let's pray to him as we finish. God, I thank you for what you have done. 
throughout history and to this day, that your cleansing flood still moves on this earth and that it is not a a flood of destruction, but a flood of salvation. And so we praise you for that, God, and we see your providential, powerful hand at work. And we are reminded, God, that you are reliable. You are the reliable one, that we can count on you not only to punish evil, but to save those who belong to you. And we thank you, God, that in Jesus Christ, that is us. And we pray in his name, amen.